let's do it. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's um, about a minute before seven, so we may as well start on time. Um, well, I'd like to welcome you all here tonight. Um, this is actually the first of the two evening lectures that we have supporting our new exhibition, uh, London's Lost Museums, which I hope those of you who turned up earlier will have had a chance uh, to have a look at. I also hope that some of you managed to also look in the library as well, where we had a number of archive materials out, all themed for Egyptology, so we really have themed the whole evening. Um, well, my role here tonight is to welcome uh, John J. Johnson, who's very kindly agreed to come and talk to us tonight on the theme of unwrapping Egypt's ancient dead. And to introduce him, John J. Johnson is currently uh, working on his PhD at UCL. He is, and I must get this right, he's the vice chairman of the Egypt Exploration Society, based at the Institute of Archaeology, also at UCL. And according to my colleague, who's taking assiduous notes, he has lectured on various subjects in Egyptology from as locations as diverse as Coventry and Copenhagen. So all over the place. So we're extremely pleased to have him here tonight in his jet setting. And um, without more ado, I shall hand over. Thank you. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Ah, does that work? Good. I'm delighted to be asked to speak to you this evening. Um, I was asked specifically at the outset to, to try and find some way of, of tying this lecture in with, with the exhibition of London's Lost Museums. Um, so the idea of being lost in time and space I thought particularly apt, specifically because so much of what I'll be talking about this evening takes place in some of those lost museums and other buildings which no longer exist in London. So we'll see some of those as we go through it. Of course, the other thing that's lost is the practice of unrolling or unwrapping ancient Egyptian mummies. Uh, it's not something that we do any longer, and it's not something that we've done so, for some considerable time, as you'll see. Um, but I just thought I'd start with, uh, I was speaking to a colleague who, who's based at Glasgow University on a, a very sort of crackly mobile telephone line. And I said, I've been invited by the Royal College of Surgeons to do a lecture on unrolling mummies. And she said, the Royal College of Surgeons are letting you do what? And I said, no, 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 and they're not letting me unroll one. They're asking me to talk about it. Um, so I managed, to, I managed to put that right before she called the, um, the culture police. But the, but the very reaction that I got, and it was a very real reaction, was the fact that, my God, it's something that you just don't do. Um, there are so many other ways of seeing what's under the bandages that it's something that we don't have to do any longer. However, um, let's go right back and look at the... Um, sorry, I'd better explain before I go any further... It probably goes without saying, but I've given a number of lectures in the last 18 months, two years, where there are representations of dead ancient Egyptians. So I had better warn you, before we start, there will be cadavers, um, like that one. Let's go right back and decide what we're talking about as regards mummies. Um, this is a dead ancient Egyptian. He's a pre-dynastic burial. He's in the British Museum, not very far from here at all. Uh, he's from the Nagada II period, and he was excavated, we're told, uh, by Sir Edgar Wallace Budge uh, back in 1900. He's a naturally desiccated corpse. Uh, he was placed in the fetal position, as you see him there. He was placed 
in the sand, and the sand covered over him, and the sand naturally desiccated the body. He's not, therefore, a mummy. For you to be a mummy, certain very specific things have to be done. First and foremost, the thing that schoolboys always love, the idea of removing the brain through the nose, with the, um, the hook on the end there. The, these, these objects are all in the British Museum, in, including the mummy. Um, the, the idea that the, the, the body has to be properly treated before you can create a mummy. So the brain's removed through the, through the nose. Um, the side then, the left, the left flank is, is, is then sliced open and the internal organs removed through that, through that incision. Um, this, is a, this is a wax plaque that in some cases we find placed over that incision uh, to provide protection and to stop any malevolent forces from entering the body. Um, and then of course, having removed these, these internal organs, they're placed in canopic jars. They're all individually mummified. They're all individually dried out. They're wrapped individually and placed into canopic jars and under the protection of these genii. Um, and they're buried with you. They don't go back into the body. Your heart may well be treated separately and go back into the body, or your heart may just be left in the body. Um, you are then placed in what was previously thought to be a bath of natron, uh, Colleagues who've carried out experiments in the Cairo Museum have shown that it can't be a bath because you just turn into soup. Um, you're placed under a mound or in the middle of a mound of natron salt, which dries out the body uh, very effectively, which stops deterioration and decomposition. And you end up a bit like a very expensive leather bag with bones in. Then, of course, they wrap you very carefully, each little individual digit, each little individual toe, very carefully in bandages, until we end up with large winding sheets which are going around the whole body. So you're a neatly prepared package. That's your mummy. Of course, the thing that people always forget, because people either see unwrapped mummies in museums, or they see horror films, is that very few mummies are in any way able to be ambulatory. Uh, it's, it's unusual to see, until the later periods, arms and legs wrapped separately and remaining wrapped separately. Normally, everything's wrapped up together to create that nice package that you can see there. And the nice package that um, some of the people I'll be discussing this evening like to get their scalpels into. This is the face of Seti I, and this is the face of Yuya. Um, two spectacular examples of the embalmer's art from ancient Egypt. Uh, Seti I has that wonderful, almost sculptural quality about him. The, the perfection of the mummification really is spectacular. It's a point, it's the 19th dynasty. Uh, the priests and the artisans who were involved in mummification knew precisely what they were doing by this point. They could, they could insert Nile mud and so forth under the skin to create a semblance of life. Um, in the 18th dynasty with Yuya here, although he wasn't himself royal, he was, he was the father of, uh, of, one of, the, of one of the queens, Queen T, and therefore I suppose he was the great-grandfather of Tutankhamun. Um, I always try to drop Tutankhamun in because people like him so much. So, uh, so I, I've made my effort for the evening. Um, 
and he's an entirely different type of mummy. He's um he's rather less sculptural and looks far more like like someone who's asleep. That's not a particularly good photograph. There are there are some side views of him where he really does look like an elderly man who's just dozed off on the bus. Um, so that's the sort of thing that Egyptologists were looking for when they when they cut through the wrappings to get it to get at what was in there. Of course, that happens much much later in history. Before that, we still have to get through the um, the earlier pe periods of history, uh, and we have Francis the first of France, um, and he apparently took a potion of ground mummy and rhubarb every day. Uh, because he thought that it would make him stronger, and he thought it would make him more like a pharaoh. Uh, he also used to carry a little bag of powdered mummy with him, which again he thought would make him stronger, but he also fascinatingly thought would prevent assassins from, from attacking him. So, so we have the idea that, it, that it's going to do wonderful things for him internally, but also the fact that this powdered mummy is going to do wonderful things for him in a magical sense. Um, and we're talking, sorry, it's not my period of history, so I just have to check my notes. We're talking between 1494 and 1547. So it's not any manner of means the Dark Ages, uh, but we have a very real belief by one of the most important men of his day in the efficacy of, money, of mummy. Charles II, of course. Um, he rubbed ground-up mummy into his body on a daily basis because he thought it was doing him good. He thought that it made him more kingly, more imbued with the power um, that had been passed down to him from, from God. Um, again, this, this is slightly worrying, but it's indicative of the fact that's what people believed. We also have things up here which are not represented on the screen we have something described as mummy brown, and it's a paint that was used during the Renaissance and was greatly loved by the pre-Raphaelites because, of course, they wanted to connect with the Renaissance in that way. And it was made from ground-up mummy. And a lot of people got rid of paintings when they finally realized what it involved. Um, but what surprised me when I was preparing for this evening's lecture was how recently Mummy Brown disappeared from our shelves. Uh, there's an article from Friday the 2nd of October 1964's edition of Time magazine where they interviewed Geoffrey Robeson Park, who was at that point the managing director of the venerable um, C. Robeson painter and color, paint and color makers. They're still based in London. They're not on the same premises any longer. But they still, they still operate in London. They still make very expensive artist materials. Um, and he said in 1964 that his firm has run out of mummies. I quote, uh, we might have a few odd limbs lying around somewhere, he apologized, but not really enough to make any more paint. We sold our last complete mummy some years ago for, I think, three pounds. Perhaps we shouldn't have. We certainly can't get any more. So that's, that's, that's the end of Mummy Brown, as a, unless, unless someone has little pots of it in the attic somewhere, in which case I think you'll probably get more than three pounds for it. You may well have what remains of the Supreme Council of Antiquities knocking your door to ask for it back also. Um, 
The other strange things that we were doing at the time, there are all sorts of tales about paper, wrapping paper, and, and paper for books being made out of mummies. Some of that's thought to be apoc apocryphal. Um, it would appear that there's an American writer by the name of Wolf, S.J. Wolf, and she would appear to have found some books which have been made from, and basically it's just pulped mummies and pulp wrappings that have been made into, I suppose, fairly good quality paper. I don't know what you would want to publish on it, but that's another matter entirely. Um, so we start to see the way that mummy has, even across that huge distance of, of history, started to move across into Western culture, very much to be seen as a commodity. This gentleman is Benoit de Maillet. Um, he was a, a French nobleman of Lorraine. Um, he was born in 1656 and was Louis XIV consul in Cairo. He was also a natural historian and one of these wonderful Renaissance individuals who was fascinated by everything and expert in almost everything also. Uh, he studied at some great length the, the pyramids whilst he was in Egypt. Um, he also wrote a book, and, and the name will crop up again, although it's an entirely different book, and that's the Description de l'Egypte, uh, this one written in 1735. The reason that we're talking about him just now is that we have evidence that he took a group of French tourists, probably ambassadors and various, various um, states people, off somewhere and unwrapped a mummy for them. And that would appear to be the first occasion where we have a Westerner who's going there, who's doing it for scientific purposes, but also, also with a little bit of the show about it. We're not just taking some locals to see this. This is this is what your forebears contain. This this is what this mummy contains. These are your forebears. We're talking about a statesman taking other statesmen who are visiting Egypt. To see it, so so there's there's definitely something of the of the great show about it. I feel this gentleman is uh, Thomas Greenhill, and he was a physician and anatomist. And his great work, the one thing that he will be remembered for, is Necrocadia, um, which was the full title is Necrocadia or the Art of Embalming wherein is shown the rite of burial and funeral ceremonies, especially that of preserving bodies after the Egyptian method. And this was published in 1705, and through observation and through unwrappings, although they would appear not to be public unwrappings, we certainly don't have evidence of them being public unwrappings. What we do have, though, is him looking at what the ancient Egyptians did and comparing it with what was happening at the time. He was horrified at the state of burials and embalmings in England at this time. And this was his uh, fervent prayer to do something about that uh, and make sure that embalmers knew what was required of them, knew what was possible, and how they, how they could reenact um, the ancient Egyptian way of doing things. The, the, book, the book was surprisingly, because I wouldn't have thought there would be that many embalmers in this uh, in that century. Um, surprisingly, the book sold very well and was also abstracted in um, 
a publication called Philosophical Transactions, which will come to, which, which was a, a part work, essentially, looking at, looking at different aspects of the human condition. Um, but that version of it has a, has a very odd poem, which it doesn't scan very well, so you'll excuse me. But it's written by a gentleman called J. Oldmixon to his ingenious friend, Mr. Thomas Greenhill. And it says, "'Tis great and worthy of our praise to lead the living through the dwellings of the dead." I told you it didn't really scan. "'Death's grisly terrors by your skill to charm, and his fell furies of their stings disarm. The mighty maker has on you bestowed the wondrous signs for a general good. The labours of your studies he has crowned with art alike important and profound. With death and time he has taught you to engage and save his best creation from their rage. That's the last part of it. It's a lot longer than that. Um, I didn't think it was fair to subject you to the whole thing. But it gives you some idea of the, the fact that there were clearly people in the country at that time who thought that he was, he was doing some good work and that it was important work. Um, and as we'll go on now in just a moment, we'll see that, it, well, we'll do it now. No, that's not it. Uh, as we'll go on in a moment, we'll see that um, William Hunter was also uh, fascinated with the idea of embalming and how best to go about it, despite the fact that as a surgeon, uh, he was also very keen on keeping people alive and working on living people. He was also very keen on trying to do the best for the dead. He's not obviously a surgeon, but he's got a lot of blood on his hands at various points. Um, and this is Napoleon. This is a wonderfully evocative and totally unhistoric um, representation by Jean-Louis Charom uh, from 1865, long after Napoleon was dead. But it represents that period from 1798 until 1801, where Napoleon goes into Egypt um, and really opens up Egypt properly for the West. It's the first time he takes his, his bunch of scholars, most of whom are from the Académie Française, and uh, are ref referred to normally as the savants, and he takes them out there to produce the Description de l'Egypte, uh, which is produced over, oh, from 17, uh, from 1809 until 1818. So produced, published over nine years in 23 volumes, vast volumes, special bookcases were created to be able to hold these volumes. Very few people were able to purchase them, most libraries at that time couldn't even afford them. It was only private libraries, those of kings and emperors, um, like Napoleon himself. Um, but it's vitally important because from that point we start to see we start to see real trade, real levels of antiquities and mummies coming into Europe. Uh, we also start to see visitors going out to Egypt for the first time in not vast numbers, but more significant numbers than ever previously. <coughs> this is William Hunter that we were talking about before. The two Hunter brothers, um, I'm delighted to say, were Scotsmen uh, from East Kilbride, from Long Calderwood, just outside Glasgow. Um, William the Elder, John the Younger. Of course, John Hunter is the founder of the Hunterian Museum, upon which his collection was the nucleus, um, although it has continued to grow substantially since then. Uh, 
The elder brother, William, as, as I already mentioned, was fascinated with embalming and how best to go about it. Um, he was apparently a, an incredibly able anatomist and was a brilliant demonstrator and lecturer. But he's had a fairly bad run in history because he never actually published anything himself. The only notes that we have, the only indication that we have of the great thoughts that went through his head are the notes of his students which have survived. Uh, so everyone always looks at him and says, oh, yes, yes, he was a brilliant man, but could have been that brilliant because he never published. Um, but of course, what he did do was he had his own collection of Egyptian objects and natural history objects, uh, which formed the very first public museum in Glasgow, which is the Hunterian Museum attached to Glasgow University. So both brothers have been able to produce museums, both of which contain very nice mummies, or bits of mummies. Um, the reason that I'm talking about them in some detail is because of this mummy's foot, which we have upstairs, I'm delighted to say, on exhibition. I don't know, is it always an exhibition, or has it been brought out specially for? I'm delighted to hear that. Um, because when I was up there the other week looking at it, it still looks astonishingly like this drawing that was made at the time. Um, the, there, was a, there was an article written by way of a letter uh, from John Hadley uh, to uh, the great anatomist William Heberden, which is called Account of a Mummy and was, and was published in Society's Phys Philosophical Transactions. And it's about 16 pages, and it looks at, well, a little bit of it here. Um, the situation is that the, the individuals in question, who we'll get to in a moment, have a mummy, which they've been able to get from the Royal Society. It doesn't go into details about how they get it. I imagine some money changed hands. And it had been presented to the Royal Society originally by Henry, Duke of Norfolk. Um, and he had received this mummy somehow from the Royal Pyramids, I quote. Um, although the fact that it comes from the pyramid age, I think, highly unlikely. Um, it was in a dreadful, dreadful state of, state of repair. Uh, the head would appear to have been gone entirely with part of the torso gone. The feet, that's possibly why we still have this foot, the feet had at some point been removed and been reattached with modern wire of the period. Um, so a very sad, solitary individual, unfortunately. No case, nothing else. Uh, so probably in the circumstances, the best thing would be to unwrap it and see what could be gleaned from it. So um, on the 16th day of December, 1763, Dr. Wollaston, Dr. Blanchard, Dr. Hunter, Dr. Pettit, the Reverend Mr. Edgerton Lee, and Mr. Hunter, so both Hunter brothers, met at my house that we might together inspect a mummy, which I had received from the Museum of the Royal Society. Our intention was to examine the manner in which this piece of antiquity had been put together, to compare it with the accounts given of these preparations by ancient authors, and to see whether there were any traces left of the softer parts, and if so, by what means they had been prepared. And then, many pages later, on cutting into the fillets on the sole of the foot, that by, by, by which he, he means the wrappings on the sole of the foot, uh, they were found to enclose a bulbous root. The appearance of this was very fresh, and part of the thin, shining skin came off with a flake of the dry, brittle filleting, 
which had been bound down. It seemed to have been contact with the flesh, the base of the root lying towards the heel. So they came across, and, and they wondered, how on, how on earth does a bulbous root, and it's impossible to tell what it is without doing some serious, I'm, I'm not a biologist, I think it probably is an onion. Um, I had thought at first that it might be something to do with lotus, so it could be because lotus uh, are, are bulbs, but no, it definitely doesn't look like any lotus bulb I've seen, so I think it may well be an onion. But that shouldn't come as a great surprise to us now, because obviously we know a lot more than these experimenters did at the time. Um, the very fact of there being a, a dry, what appears to be a dry, dead, depressed piece of vegetable matter that can suddenly, if treated in the right conditions, spontaneously produce live green shoots, ties in perfectly with the ancient Egyptian idea of life and the afterlife and the, the dead husk of a mummy that can live again. So therefore, we see onions cropping up in various aspects throughout the, throughout the history of mummification. Quite often, we get them um, popped into the eye sockets. Uh, now, th there are two reasons for that. One, because the drying process of the natron would destroy the eyes that were there and would just leave little balls of nothing terribly useful. Um, so it would create a semblance of there still being eyeballs underneath the lids. But also, it ties in again with the idea of this multi-layered life, uh, both in this life and in the afterlife, and of these bulbs being able to once again spontaneously produce life. I mean, we've, we've all left onions in the fridge, and they sit there, for, and without, without even looking at them, but just ignoring them, they still start sprouting again. So the Egyptians clearly were buying into this. Um, We, we also, on this same occasion, they go to some efforts to, to scrape away bits of what they describe as the asphaltum um, to find out what that's made of, what, what the resins are that, that the mummy's covered in. Um, ultimately, it appears that there's not that much in the way of flesh left on, on the body. Uh, mainly, it's down to this one foot. So they, so they distill this, and, and they discover that it, that it is... They had thought it was more of a mineral resin, but it would appear that, that it is a, a vegetable resin that the, they're left with. Um, and Hadley's ultimate conclusion is that the bodies of the ancient Egyptians are far less well-preserved than the ancient authors would lead us to believe. Well, that's certainly the case with this poor individual, but as we've seen with Yuya and Seti I, sometimes they were extraordinarily good, particularly when you're closer to the top of the tree. But he does go on to say, nevertheless, still in a much better state of preservation than if he had just been put into a coffin and left alone. Um, I, don't think, I don't think there would be anything for them to look at, look at except a bundle of bones. Moving on substantially now, uh, sooner or later, uh, during this period, we have to come across Giovanni Battista Belzoni. Uh, he was born in Padua. He was six foot seven inches tall, we're told, and he worked initially as a strong man at Sadler's Wells Theatre. And his great thing was holding an iron bar with which he used to dangle 12 individuals from, um, which must have been quite something to see. I'm not sure whether he actually did it, but it's a nice idea. Anyway, after that stopped working out for him, he went off to Egypt, met uh, Dravetti, 
who was an Egyptologist working out there, and then ended up working for Sir Henry Salt, um, who was the British consul in Egypt, who was quite keen to bring back as many antiquities as he could to this country. And Belzoni was not only very strong, but also very able and very quick-witted, and therefore they made the ideal partnership. Um, Belzoni very quickly worked out what he thought was good material and was, a, was able to bring it back to Salt's delight. And, and the, the, the pair of them worked very well with, Bel, uh, with Belzoni going off, usually with his wife and a small coterie of other individuals. He discovers the tomb of Seti I, um, from which he takes the beautiful alabaster sarcophagus, which is just that way across Lincoln's Inn Field in the Soane's Museum. Sadly, it doesn't look as good now as it did when he found it, because the um, rather polluted air of London has, has tarnished it. And whereas once upon a time it was almost trans transparent in places, um, it's, it's definitely not any longer. Nevertheless, it's still a very beautiful piece. Um, he found a way of entering the Pyramid of Khafre, the Pyramid of Kifrun, the second Pyramid at Giza, um, and did a rather better job of it than people have done since with the third pyramid. And he perhaps most famously went to, to Abu Simbel, tried to find entry there but couldn't, but was one of the first Europeans to go so far down the Nile um, to, to be able to see Abu Simbel. He also, somehow or other, well, we know how he did it, but it's still something of a feat. He brought back the younger Memnon, as he was known at the time, uh, the wonderful, huge, colossal torso that stands in the middle of the sculpture gallery in the British Museum. And he brought that all the way back without the aid of modern machinery, with just good, strong rope and good, strong individuals, and some fairly strong boats as well. Um, so this really hugely kicks off the, the, the rage and the interest in, in ancient Egypt in this country. Um, that, together with the, the work that the savants are doing in, in, in France, in Paris particularly. So we have something like um, William Bullock's Egyptian Hall, which at that point was number 22 Piccadilly. Um, it's now, where is it? I think it's now 173 one, one to 177 Piccadilly. Um, and it's, it's just across from Burlington Gardens. And it's still called Egyptian House, but of course it looks nothing like that any longer. It's still nice that they kept the name Egyptian House. Um, a wonderful museum. It was called the London Museum at this point, although everyone referred to it as Bullock's Egyptian Hall. Really all that's left of it are the representations of Isis and Osiris above the door. And they can still be found in the Museum of London uh, towards the end. And they're not terribly Egyptian-looking at all. They, they were terribly Egyptian for what was thought at this period, but not to our eyes now, which I think are possibly a little more experienced than at the time. However, there were a wide variety of exhibitions happened in there. Apparently, there were huge flocks of reindeer at one point, and Bullock was one of the first people to actually create an interesting setting uh, where he had panoramas painted on the walls to try, to try and sell that idea of natural history in the way that modern museums actually place animals in the African hall, and we, we, we have plants dotted about the place. And that, that was his effort to try, to try to do that. When, of course, as ultimately he sells his collection, 
he then starts to let it out for other people's exhibitions. And one of the first exhibitions to go in there is Belzoni's own exhibition, which looks at the discovery of Seti I's tomb. And he basically recreates the tomb of Seti I in London. It's hugely, hugely popular. Um, the great and the good and the not so good come from all around. Um, and as means of publicity, he unwraps a mummy. That you, wonder, you wondered where this was going. He unwraps a mummy, and he has one mummy wrapped, which is on display, and he has one unwrapped thereafter. So, so both are displayed. But for our purposes, one of the most important things about this, not only, not only the fact that there's a, there's a public unwrapping of a mummy, but also he has an assistant for that public unwrapping of the mummy, and the assistant is a surgeon and anatomist by the name of Thomas Joseph Pettigrew, and we'll hear a little bit, bit more about him in a moment. Before we go on to Pettigrew, though, I just want to talk about the idea of um, Egyptomania in Britain at that time. Uh, there are a couple of, there's this and there's another one in a moment of uh, Rowlandson. And this one's called A Group of Antiquarians. And it's really having a joke about the fact that these fairly obscene old creatures are fascinated with death. I mean, it's, 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 all, it's, it's the way that they're looking and leering at this, uh, this mummy case. Um, and, and the fact that he's sending up the, the fact that he seems to be sending up the fact that there's something inherently unhealthy about this interest in ancient Egypt. It was very, very popular, but it was perhaps for the intelligentsia of the period, it was too popular. It was something that they didn't want to engage with. Um, in the Morning Chronicle in 1805, a lady complains that, since this accursed Egyptian style came into fashion, my eldest boy rides in a sphinx instead of a rocking horse. My youngest has a pat boat in the shape of a crocodile, and my husband has built a water closet in the shape of a pyramid. <laughs> and his shirt, and the worst part, I would have said the water closet in the pyramid, and his shirts are marked with a lotus. We also have the first in a dreadful series. I'm not normally terribly interested in poetry, but really, when I've been doing the research for this, it's, it's been thrust at me from all angles. We have the first in a series of dreadful, dreadful poems over, written over the next 75 years relating to, well, it's called Address to the Mummy at Belzoni's Exhibition. And I'm, I'm not going to read any of that to you. <laughs> the, 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 there are enough other worrying ones to come. Um, so in some respects, we have this huge interest in Egyptomania at the time, but also this feeling that it's unhealthy and linked to, linked to death. But also the other Rowlandson one is, well, this isn't about death. This is about the other, isn't it? Um, it's always sex and death, and this is certainly not death. Um, and there's also a feeling that lots and lots of people are going to these big public events and these big, exciting blockbuster <laughs> exhibitions in the way that we have blockbuster exhibitions today because it's a good place to meet people and do things that you shouldn't ordinarily do. Um, and we do see a fair bit of evidence of that happening. Um, but let's move on to higher things. This is Thomas Joseph Pettigrew. Um, as I mentioned before, he was a surgeon and anatomist, and he was born in 1791 in Fleet Street, and he had helped Belzoni unwrap his mummy. This was only the first of many mummies. Um, over the period of the next 18 years, 
I think Pettigrew unwraps 13, which is pretty good going by any, anyone's standard, I think. But he wasn't some dreadful hack. He was genuinely interested in what he was finding there. Um, if we look at the first one, the first mummy that he dissected on his own, in his own home, so, so that's, he's, he's not just rushing out there to tear bandages apart. He's actually doing it at home, taking time, making an effort, and it's a late period of Ptolemaic mummy that he's bought from Saqqara, uh, brought back to this country in 1741. He's fascinated by what he finds there, makes copious notes. We don't know what happens to the mummy. And that's, that's one of the reasons I call this lecture Lost in Time and Space, because a lot of these mummies, as we'll see, once they're unwrapped, cease to be of interest to anyone. And I find that rather sad. Um, so we, we don't know what happens to this mummy. But we do know that in March 1833, he gets hold of another two mummies. Uh, one he purchases for £23. And one his friend Thomas Saunders purchases for £36.15. shillings. And he gets these mummies together, and he gets together... <coughs> For the convenience of accommodating a few friends, um, he also happens to be professor of anatomy at Charing Cross Hospital. So he goes to the main lecture theatre, lecture stroke, surgical theatre at Charing Cross Hospital, and unwraps these two mummies in front of, well, probably the lowliest creature there, if I can say that, was Edward Hawkins, who was keeper of antiquities in the British Museum. Everyone else are princes, lords, politicians, statesmen, um, a smattering of anatomists, archaeologists, travellers. But it's, it's, it's the great and the good, and they're all there to see this. Um, he then gives another demonstration, just very shortly after, June the 24th, when again the great and the good turn up, and he goes to the Royal, Institu the Royal Institution to do this one. Um, and it's hugely popular. He, he doesn't, he's not selling tickets at this point, but that will come. Uh, but it becomes apparent that it's something that people want to see. And it's a string, it's almost as if he creates the market for it. People had never thought about really doing it previously, but as, as, as soon as they cotton on to the idea, they know that they want to see more of it. This wonderful, wonderful uh, watercolour was done by William Clift, who for many years here during this period was uh, curator, for want of a better description, of the Hunterian Museum. This, this watercolour, I pinched from the internet because it's actually on the online catalogue for the Hunterian Museum. And there are a number of similar watercolours. This is the uh, cartonage coffin of, of Horsiesi. Um, and it was on display. Uh, so, so it's a cartonage coffin. It's, it's made of bits of vegetable matter, papyrus, um, Nile mud, all bound together with some straw and wrapped, uh, covered in gypsum. And it's, it's like a sort of plaster slurry uh, that, that you can manipulate, like, like papier-mâché. Uh, and the, it fastens up the back with lace. And you pop the mummy inside and pull it tight, and, and there, there we have. And it was a cheaper way for the ancient Egyptians than having wooden coffins. Now, that might in itself be popped into a wooden coffin, uh, but
But in this case, we don't have the coffin. We just have the mummy in the cartonnage uh, coffin. So there have been discussions between Pettigrew, who's come here and he's, he's seen the mummy on display, and he asks if he can borrow these and to take them. So there are a series of letters that go back from him to the council asking if, if, if he can borrow these. He couldn't pinch them from the internet the way that I did. Um, asking if he can borrow the, the drawings. And he, hazards a, he has a go at translating the hieroglyphs. And he thinks that he finds Horsiesi incense bearer of Amon. There's a discussion then with his colleagues because surely it ought to have a beard. Should, well, should, everyone, everyone assumed it was going to be a woman. Um, so he takes it one step further and he writes to the, the Council of the Royal College of Surgeons and says, thank you very much for that. Um, I will, however, this is this letter, and the dates are important. This letter is dated the 30th of December, 1833. I will, however, take this opportunity of acquainting you that I've already been able to make out the name and occupation of the Egyptian, uh, and that he's been brought from Thebes. It would be very satisfactory to have the mummy unrolled, and this may be done without any injury whatsoever to the case. I should be happy to undertake this task or to assist anyone in the performance, and should the council think fit to direct this to be done, I should be further obliged with an appointment of an early date for the purpose, as my work is now in the press, I'll explain that in a moment, and it's probable I might meet with something new in illustration of my subject. He was in the process of writing a history of Egyptian mummies. So he was keen to try and glean as much information, given at this point he had probably only dissected about well, according to what we've discussed here, about four, maybe five. So he was keen to get his hands on as many as he could at the time. Of course, the council agrees. He's, he's a greatly thought of individual within medicine, within anatomy, so how, how could they say no? Um, particularly when they're still going to be left with the, the objet d'art itself. The, the, this, is, this is going to be fine. So William Clift um, makes notes of what's happening, and this is why I said the dates were important. He writes on the 30th of December asking for permission. We don't know when permission's granted, but according to Clift's diaries, on the 13th of January, he is preparing the theatre. I so wish it were this theatre, and I'm so sure it's not, but there we are. He's preparing the theatre in readiness. Um, he's, taking inquiries, he's taking inquiries, and he's folding and sealing tickets for people. On Tuesday the 14th, they saw open the cartonnage. So they actually they, they go down very carefully and they just slice it and they lift the top off and the mummy's sitting prettily inside. On Wednesday the 15th of January, prepared large notices against the meeting tomorrow to obviate as much as may be the effects of disappointment to those who will not be able to gain admission. It says, gentlemen who may be disappointed in witnessing the unrolling of the mummy this day We'll have an opportunity of viewing it in the museum every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 12 till 4 o'clock, January the 16th, 1834. The three lower tiers of seats are reserved for the trustees of the Hunterian Collection and the British Museum, visitors and members of the council. So the idea is that the, the insiders are sitting right round the area where he's going to perform the unrolling, and everyone else has to sit further back. They're not quite prepared for what happens. On Thursday the 16th, the great day arrives. They open the doors to Lincoln's Inn Field. They also open the doors to Portugal Street. There isn't a way out to Portugal Street now, I think, but there clearly was at that point. So, they, so there were two sets of doors open, operating, and they just come flooding in. 
They come flooding into the extent that they have to turn away the Bishop of, the bishop of London and the Archbishop of Canterbury. <laughs> no one can get in apart from those who have already booked. And one, one can imagine them sitting about saying, oh, I'm, I'm, going, I'm going to see this unrolling tomorrow. Oh, I haven't got a ticket for that. Oh, maybe I ought to. I, I'm the Archbishop of Canterbury. I can open any doors. Well, he couldn't open the doors that day. Um, so at one o'clock precisely, the council come in. Um, there's the president, followed by the immediate council, followed by the mace of the Royal College of Surgeons, followed by Pettigrew himself, and assisted by William Clift, whose, whose beautiful watercolour this is, and assisted by Dr. Richard Owen, later Sir Richard Owen, who we'll hear more about shortly. Um, and they go to town, and they transform this beautifully wrapped mummy into a pile of bandages and bits and pieces. And at every point during the process, they're letting people touch the bandages. They're letting people have some, ooh. And they're, they're taking out, they're encountering little scarabs, and they're passing around the scarabs so that everyone can see it. And they're finding various other little amulets and so forth that are all being passed around. So people, people aren't sitting watching a piece of theater. People actually feel involved and engaged with it. They, they, they've got the dust of an ancient Egyptian on their hands or they're on their lapels at the end of the day. Uh, so it's a, it's a fascinating way of, a way of doing this. Um, it's something that I'm sure the Discovery Channel would love to be able to bottle and to sell through uh, 3D televisions. But um, So this is so successful that he decides to make a go of it for himself. And we have him in contact with uh, Giovanni Daffanazzi, and it's proposed that he'll give a series of lectures um, at the end of which he will unroll a mummy. So the idea is people pay and they come to the series of lectures, and if you've been to enough lectures, then you can pay a little bit extra and you get to see the mummy unrolled. What actually happens is there are two mummies to be unrolled because at the unrolling of the final mummy on the final day of the lectures, um, there we are. This is from the Literary Gazette, um, and it says, at the conclusion of his discourse, which was much applauded, Mr. Pettigrew intimated that Mr. Daffanazzi's splendid mummy from Memphis would be unrolled on the 10th of April in Ex Exeter Hall, a notice which has excited a strong sensation amongst the lovers of Egyptian law and antiquities, for hitherto those who have been examined in the country are from Thebes and other places, and we have no opportunity of seeing the generally richly ornamented mummies of Memphis. So it's something new, it's something exciting, it's a way of it's a way of getting bums on seats in the old adage, and it's being held in the Exeter Hall. Uh, it doesn't exist any longer. It's the site of, it was on the site of what's now the Strand Palace Hotel. Uh, so just around the corner. And it was vast. Um, well, you can see this, this was a concert. Uh, illustrations that I've seen from a different angle show that this, you can just see the pipes, there's a massive organ here. Um, I mean, it really was playing, playing a stadium concert for Pettigrew. And the amount of money that it brought, we don't know the amount of money that it brought in, but we can guess that it must have been spectacular. Um, on the upper floor in the principal room, 
the hall was capable of accommodating 2,500 persons. Um, so pretty good turnout. The Literary Gazette again says, uh, Mr. Pettigrew unrolled the mummy from Memphis belonging to Mr. Dathanasi in the great room of the Exeter Hall, which was, however, too large and not well enough adapted to the purpose, as the spectators were not only too distant, but all around the space and closed for the operation, and thus many of them were precluded from having a good view of Mr. Pettigrew's skillful process. So they paid lots of money to get there. They can't actually see anything very much, and isn't that often the way? Um, but Pettigrew has this in mind also because, of course, he's published. He's published his history of Egyptian mummies. Um, and this particular mummy is known here and after as Pettigrew's mummy. Uh, because when we go right back to the two that he opened in Charing Cross Hospital, there was the expensive one, which, as I said, was about £23. Uh, there was a cheap one, about £23, an expensive one at 36 when they opened the expensive one, they did that first, um, it was too badly, too badly preserved. It wasn't a good state of preservation. It was, they, they gave it up as a, as a, as a lost leader. Um, and they came to the cheap one, which was the one which Pettigrew had bought. And it was this gentleman, um, pretty well preserved. We've still got hair on. The, we also have gilding. And there's evidence of gilding at various points throughout the body. Uh, which suggests that the whole body must have been gilt at the time, which is fairly unusual for an adult mummy, normally in bits and, bits and pieces. Uh, but it's unusual to have the whole body gilt in that way. And this is the, this is the frontispiece in one of the illustrations in Pettigrew's book of Egyptian mummies, uh, his history of Egyptian mummies. It's dedicated to King William IV, um, but he's also one of the subscribers, and there's a huge list of people who've given money to allow for the publication of this book. Uh, there are lots of early Egyptologists there. Uh, there's John Gardner Wilkinson, there's James Burton. We also have Michael Faraday. And we have, <coughs> interestingly, His Grace the Duke of Hamilton, on whom we'll learn more shortly. Say, so this is the frontispiece. It's, it's very odd because... Pettigrew, despite the fact he was so fascinated with the mummies of ancient Egypt, is probably the individual responsible, most responsible, for me having to explain precisely what I wanted to talk about today. Because into that book, he also lumps various South American mummies and mummies of archbishops who've been found under St. Stephen's Tower in Westminster Abbey and various other people who've been dried out and desiccated, but not necessarily mummified in the accepted fashion. So he lumps them all together and he looks at various funerary rites and rituals across the world and throughout history. Uh, but primarily is looking at ancient Egyptians, I suppose. Um, this mummy, incidentally, we, we do know what happened to it, and it was destroyed in bombing raids in the Second World War. Um, in 1844, the British Archaeological Association is founded, and Pettigrew takes a leading role in that. And they have their first annual congress, and where does he decide to do it? He takes it to Canterbury, possibly because he feels sorry for what happened to the archbishop previously, possibly because he's worried about his eternal soul. I don't know, but they go to Canterbury anyway. Um, and the Mirror of Literature, Amusement, and Instruction, as it's called, um, I wonder if that's the Daily Mirror now. Well, uh, 
The Murrah reports on the 28th of September, when the uncovering had proceeded as far as was considered necessary, the mummy was raised on its feet and presented to the company, and its erect appearance on stage was greeted with enthusiastic applause. So the mummy gets to take a bow at the end of it. Um, I suppose you have to be careful and choose your mummy very, because you wouldn't want bits to drop off if you're doing that. However, one of the other things that he does before he raises it to its feet is that he saws off the back of the skull, and he shows everyone that there's, like a magician, there's nothing in there. Um, and that, that's, rather, that's rather, I find, rather a strange thing to do. There are lots and lots of museums around the world that I've been to where you see mummies with the tops or the backs of their skulls missing. And it, I don't know, I always find it looks somewhat obscene, um, particularly because it's very often just the head that's left of the mummy. Um, and this was clearly something that happened as a result of these unwrappings was you just take the top of the head off or take the back of the head off and then let everyone can see it and then oh, I suppose you just find the box to put all the bits into. Um, we have another little poetry from Punch magazine of the period. Uh, and this is after Canterbury. Ian on that sink of all in sorry, Ian on that sink of all iniquity, the stage, the sacrilegious monsters dared engage. On Friday evening to strip a course, a mummy called the it, and what was worse, soared through the head as, it, as if it had been cheese. Praise be where due the powder made them sneeze. Then placed upon its feet the insulted dead gave three wild yells, called cheers, and went to bed. <laughs> so even at this point, we're starting to see, and this is something that, that develops as we go along, we're starting to see a feeling that maybe it's not right to be doing this. There's, a, there's an undercurrent there that the great and the good really ought to be finding better things to do with their time. Um, I'm looking at the clock, and I'm supposed to finish very soon, I think. So I won't tell that tale. The tale that I will tell concerns this gentleman who we mentioned just before. It's the same person, uh, about 60 years apart. He was an astonishingly handsome young man and turned into a very striking old man. Um, and the very fact that he was an astonishingly handsome young man makes me wonder if that's part of the reasoning uh, for what happens. He was referred to as he's the Duke of Hamilton. It's the Hamilton estate, which is outside Glasgow again, strangely enough. Um, he was referred to during his lifetime as El Magnifico, uh, in that way that Glaswegians do. Um, and he had been a politician, he, had, he was a peer of the realm, um, he had been an ambassador, he was a great art collector, he was absolutely in love with himself. Um, but he also had a wife who he loved dearly, um, and she does feature in the story. Um, and what he wants to do, because he's fascinated by Pettigrew's work, is to have himself embalmed in the Egyptian style. This is the Hamilton Mausoleum, um, which you can actually see, if you get the motorway up to Scotland, you can see this, this shape. Um, it's by what's now referred to as Strathclyde Country Park, and that's the main entrance they go into it. There are very, very, the, the idea was that the family would all go downstairs into the vaults, but that he would be upstairs in the worship area, 
but so peculiar were the acoustics that it was never able to be used for any services because apparently there's an echo in there. I've not been to it myself, but I will the next time I'm in Glasgow. Um, there's an echo in there that lasts 15 seconds. So I can imagine giving a lecture in there would be like, imagine holding a church service in there. It's also very close to, a, a, I almost said a lake, it's very close to a small loch, um, which, which means it's extraordinarily damp, and that, that has a knock-on effect. Um, this is El Magnifico in his coffin that he brought back from Egypt. Uh, it's, it's a basalt Ptolemaic coffin, and he bought it for the British Museum. And the British Museum decided that actually that wasn't what they wanted at all. Could they have the one that they had asked for? And he said, fine, I'll buy it off you. Um, and he was interred in it. And he, he, was, he, he died in London. And he was embalmed in London. And then he was taken up to Scotland. The difficulty was that the Egyptians were much smaller than more, more modern people. <laughs> and the coffin in question was a woman's coffin. <laughs> And therefore, they had to break his legs and just st st stuff them in as best they could. Um, but of course, the sad fact is, this is how it looks today. Because the, with, the, with the rising damp and with the fact that the acoustics, they had to move all of the Hamiltons out. And they've ended up, they've ended up in the abysmally named uh, town of Bent, just just a mile down the road, and he's in Bent Cemetery. Um, and this is how it looks today. And you can still, as I say, you can wander around, you can visit the place, and someone's placed a little photograph of how it would have looked on top of the... So all of this had been prepared previously, and all that was left was just the date of his death that was chipped in at the last minute. So he was very pharaonic in the idea that he had prepared his, his, everlast his everlasting resting place. That's a difficult one to say. I told you we would talk about the Duchess of Hamilton. Well, this was intended for the Duchess of Hamilton, and it's a granite coffin of Pabasa from the 21st, 26th dynasty. And it's in the Kelvin Grove Museum in Glasgow now because the Duchess of Hamilton decided that she wasn't having her legs broken whether she was dead or not. <laughs> and she didn't go into it. Um, so she bequeathed it. I don't think she bequeathed it. I think she gave it in life. She gifted it in life uh, to, the, to Glasgow. Um, and it did at one point hold a wonderful magisterial place within the Kelvin Grove Museum. And it's, it's now ended up somewhere else, and it doesn't look nearly as magisterial. Just before we move away from the Hamiltons, um, there, there is a funny tale that I was told by a Scottish journalist many years ago who was engaged in dark matters in 1972 when the Tutankhamen exhibition came to London. And the then, I'm hoping there are no members of the Hamilton family here. The then Duke of Hamilton in 1972 thought that he might be able to make some money if he went to the cemetery at Bent and exhumed the 10th Duke. They could do whatever they wanted with the 10th Duke, but he wanted to get his hands on this coffin. And of course, the problem was, I've already mentioned the damp on a couple of occasions. When they dug down, the cupboard was bare. And everything has just slid. It's on a slight incline. 
and everything's just slid down. And it may well be at the bottom of that little lock that I mentioned. Uh, so I, I think we've probably seen the last of the tenth duke. There are a couple of things that I will. I'll, I'll talk about. This is Augustus Botsey Granville, and um, he was working at University College London. And his mummy that he unrolled, that he actually performed a full autopsy on, uh, has just been in the news quite recently because the little bits and pieces that are left of it, and they're few and far between, um, have been re-examined by uh, cellular biologists. And he had pretty much decided that the lady in question, Iret Senu, um, had died from an ovarian tumour. And it would appear that that wasn't the case at all, and it was tuberculosis. Um, and they've, they've only just gone back and completed these very recently. So it was quite nice to open up The Guardian one day and find, oh, good heavens, Gran Granville and her mummy staring out at me. But, um, but it shows how, how these are still things that we feel something about, things that are still worthy of reporting, not at the back of the, of the science reports, but very often on the first couple of pages of the newspaper, it's something that, that is still important to us. Um, I had wanted to say something, oh sorry, this is Eret Senu and this is the mummy, or this was the mummy from, from uh, Granville's publication. I had wanted to say something about the more outré private party versions. Uh, Lord Lonsborough lived in, I was going to say comparative luxury, no, spectacular luxury um, and was interested in archaeology and managed to get his hands on a mummy and decided to and this happens quite a lot we see that after the the stadium like excesses of Pettigrew that it becomes a much smaller affair and you, you just get 20 or 30 friends around in a large house and you have some drinks and maybe you have dinner beforehand and you get one of your mates. It doesn't need to be an Egyptologist. It doesn't need to be an anatomist. You get one of your friends who dabbles dilettante to get up and say a few words, and then you have at it with um. It's not going to be the cutlery, but you you have the appropriate implements. But it's not a scientific experience in any way. It's it's a bit of fun. It's a bit bit of harmless fun. This is the point where there are lots and lots of references in the very small amount of literature relating to unrolling of mummies. A lot's written about the fact that there's a great flourish as the genitals are revealed. And I've not been able to find any evidence of that in the research that I've done. Now, this may be the scene where that happens. It may be this, this idea of the private parties rather than the... the, the, the <laughs> <laughs> it, it may be at the private parties um, where, where that happens. It's, it's certainly not in the it's certainly not in the big arena spaces, not least because because by this point we're we're Victorians. It's 1850, um, and therefore one doesn't speak of, look at, or otherwise write about genitalia. Um, of course, there may be another reason, and that is. Mummies, for those who haven't seen unwrapped mummies, and it's quite difficult to see them now, um, breast tissue compresses to nothing. It's, it's very difficult, unless you can see the genitals, it's often very difficult to tell what the gender of the mummy is. Um, 
even with, with ladies who would have been large, rested in life, there's really no evidence of that after the compression of the bandages and the desiccation process of the natron. So it may have a sound scientific reason, or it may have happened at these occasions, or it simply may be the fetid imaginings of later scholars uh, who've thought, yes, yes, that must, that must be what it's all about. Because there's certainly an aspect that, that we discover later. I don't think we're going to be able to discover it later. When am I due to finish talking? Ten minutes ago. Yeah, OK. <laughs> um, it may be something to do with the fact that there's certainly a sexual element to a lot of the mummy short stories written by people like Gautier, and, um, and particularly the French authors you get a sexual element. The mummies in question are always beautiful young women um, who, despite the fact that they're desiccated young women, um, the author falls madly in love with, and there's the, the romance of the mummy. There's also the mummy's foot, where the author buys himself a little mummified foot paperweight and falls madly in love with the owner of this foot. Um, so it may be that more modern scholars are confusing the two aspects. I personally don't see how they end up working together. Um, I am terribly sorry. There were lots of things that I wanted to talk you to. Oh, Th this, is, this, is, this is worth stopping at. This is 1908, so we're almost in the modern age. And this is in Manchester, and it's Margaret Murray, who worked under Petrie and lived herself to be 100 years of age. And it's, I think, the only photograph we have of a packed hall with an unrolling taking place. And there was actually a huge outcry in the press about the unrolling taking place. And there was another poem, which I don't have time for. But the, but the poem on this occasion was about the fact that, um, oh, it, it finishes, and yet they might have let you sleep and the idea that we really shouldn't be doing this. And Margaret Murray was furious because she was a very serious, dedicated Egyptologist. And she hit back with the fact that none of that was done for show. We sold tickets. These people wanted to come. But I made sure that what I was doing was entirely scientific. And that's really the last unrolling that we have. I can't find any evidence of anything happening after that. And there are reasons that I would have discussed. This is the result of the unrolling. There are reasons that I would have discussed about the fact that literature, cinema, the fact that we can do things with computer tomography now um, prevent the necessity of mummy unrollings. We have this now. We have Dr. von Hagen, um, who has a different type of mummification and describes it as modern mummification. Um, and really, as far as I can see, it's, far, it's as far distant as the moon from Egyptian mummification. These are people who've donated their bodies, but they haven't donated them with a purpose that they want to go on into the afterlife. It's not about preservation. It's purely about showmanship. And it's wrapped up in a little education. A couple of colleagues of mine had been along in these. Oh, yes, we saw things that we've never seen previously. And you've looked at science books. You don't need to see it literally in the flesh to know that it's there. Um, so I, I, I'm a little concerned by those. Um, this is a particularly beautiful, detailed painting of genuine individuals, uh, including Gaston Maspero and Emile Bruch. Uh, and it's the unwrapping of a mummy in Cairo on the 4th of February, 1891. 
And I just thought it would be nice to leave it up there for you to look at for the end. Um, but I wanted to say, I, I think the whole mummy unrolling phenomenon was a very particular aspect of European imperialism at the time. It was showing to the world these are the things that we can access now that we've never been able to access previously. A little bit like Roman emperors bringing back rhinoceri and various things. And instead of studying them or doing useful things, they made them fight in the arena. So I think, I think it's the same sort of, not only can we get our hands on these things, but we can do something utterly trivial with them. Of course, fortunately, along with the utterly trivial, we have people who are taking the first scientific steps. And we have the first, you know, Pettigrew, despite the fact he was clearly a showman, was also a serious scientist. And Pettigrew's book, The History of, of Egyptian Mummies, really is the starting point for all mummy books since. Uh, and one of my colleagues who's sitting in the, the audience who does lots and lots of work with mummies and who worked with mummies at the British Museum a huge amount, um, knows that without that initial step, we wouldn't be here today at all, I think. Um, so thank you. I'm sorry I missed out so much because I was enjoying talking about what I did. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. Thank you very much. Yes, that was, that was King Francis I of France. But we also had King Charles II, who he didn't swallow it, he just rubbed it into his skin. There, there was a sort of a black market. One, one could get anything that you wanted but by the way of spices, or as long as you paid enough money, as long as you were prepared to wait for it. Um, of course, we don't know what sorts of mummies these were. They may have been the kings of Egypt, they may have been they may have been people who were murdered and mummified for the purpose and then just they may just have been corpses from a local village that were being used um, so I think if you're buying mummy go to your doctor <laughs> yes uh, that the actual the actual mummy itself or the or the finding of it uh, the, the finding of it, it's about 17, what, 1764, did I say? Let, let, me just, let me just check that, sorry. Yeah, so This is worth having a look at if you haven't had a chance to have a look at it because if you go around the other side, the side that doesn't have the bulbous root, the, um, the toenails are still perfectly attached and you can see there's evidence of the fact that at some point during life, probably more likely during life than by the embalmers, the toenails have been painted with some sort of red paint. Um, so it's certainly worth having a look. Sorry. No, he had two mummies in Charing Cross. He had only one. Oh, sorry, I see. Yes, there were two mummies on. There was a mummy on two different days. 
Um, you also said that pedigree was the, the one you had on deal with. Yes. What do you mean by that? Uh, covered, in, covered in gold leaf. He reckons, ordinarily you get it on the face, you get it in the hands, you get it sometimes on the feet, almost certainly on the genitals, but it's very unusual to find it in other parts of the, also nipples. Um, it's very unusual to find it in other parts of the body. There were specks of gold leaf across the whole body, which suggests that at some point it must have been entirely covered in gold that leaf. Was a normal thing for mummies? It frequently was a normal thing for mummies. One of the things that the Egyptians believed was that after death, you became like the goddess Iris, um, and the Egyptians believed that the, the flesh of the gods was made of gold and their bones made of silver. So therefore, by gilding the body in that way, you're allying yourself with the gods. Um, of course, the thing that I, that I ought to point out, for those who may be unaware, uh, for the vast majority of people, the best they could hope for would be the sort of burial as the, the very first slide that I showed, the pre-dynastic individuals tipped into a hole in the ground. What we're talking about, the mummies we've been discussing, really are the higher echelons of ancient Egyptian society, maybe the top 5 6%, no more than that. Well, that's what I couldn't understand. It didn't seem to be hundreds We're talking a 3,000-year history. Um, so that's, that's a lot of upper echelons. The, the idea, though, was that, that by creating the mummies, you were supposed to be unperishable. Mm -hmm. So by making it gold, you made it lasting forever. Mm -hmm. uh, so the, for the Egyptians, the idea of the flesh rotting away very quickly, they had taken steps, they had mummified them. And we've seen, with many of them, they mummified them very well. So they are largely unperished. Uh, the, the Egyptians believed that, that, bones, that the bones of the gods were made of silver. But they, but they didn't use it on mummies because one didn't see the, the bones. Yes. Fascinating lecture. Fascinating. Thank you. What happens to all the unrolling bits? You haven't mentioned that. That's, that's, well, that's one of the things that I wanted, if I can just very briefly da, 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 go. They go into collections, they go into cardboard boxes, they get blown up by World War II bombs, they get flooded by basement boilers that explode. Uh, what we do have here, that there was one of the, the, one of the last unrollings which took place at UCL, and we still have these came up for, for auction just a couple of years ago, and there are bits and pieces of the, the, the wrappings of that mummy uh, which came up for auction in a, in a little picture frame with some cards written in Wallace Budge's handwriting explaining what they were. And I think it went for about 900 pounds. Um, but with the, with the Margaret Murray lecture, the, the very last one that took place, um, we have the fact that if everyone comes up at the end and gives their name and gives them details, they're given a little piece of mummy cloth to take away with them as a souvenir, which is a little strange. And, and I'm afraid it doesn't really tie as well or as easily with Margaret Murray's idea that it was all entirely scientific. However, um, I wouldn't have imagined she would give away any pieces of the cloth that had any inscriptions on. 
So what's she going to do with this? some of some of these mummies were wrapped in like sixty nine foot of cloth? What's she going to do with an unrolled sixty nine foot of cloth? Um, that being said, there must be lots of museums and collections around the country that do have boxes and boxes of mummy wrappings. Um, so yes, it is, it's this thing. Whilst the mummies are still intact, there were something that are commodity that people are interested in. Once they're unrolled, then really they're the yesterday's men. Yes. Am I right in thinking that that's how mummies originally became known in the West? There's, there's certainly lots of talk in very early medicinal writings about the use of mummia. Um, and therefore, yes, I suppose, I think Shakespeare makes mention of mummia, uh, and, and it becomes part of, part of parlance of the, of the period. It was known as a medical commodity, but of course, again, one has to question how genuine the mummy was that one was using, or even if it were genuine, how much of it were being used. Just a tiny, tiny little pinch might do, might do you for six months, but it still might cost you 12 months of wages. Um, so it, it really is, it really is rich man's medicine. Um, not least because, of course, none of these mummies, there was no discussion then about the upper echelons of society or anything. As far as these people were concerned, all of the mummies were all pharaohs. They were all people who had ruled Egypt. Um, so, so even if they weren't buying health, they were buying glamour and excitement. And I swallowed a bit of someone today who used to rule the world. Well, that's something to talk about for at least six months. Museum and the Royal College of Surgeons. I'd like to thank uh, John J. Johnson again for, for coming here, giving such an entertaining talk. I regret that, um, unfortunately, if you do hand back your evaluation forms, we will not be able to give you a piece of anything to take away with you. But we are, as ever, always grateful for your feedback on the events that we have here. And should you wish to join our emailing list, please do write that down as well. And um, our next lecture, our next evening event, is going to be on the 9th of June, and we have Philip Davis from English Heritage who's going to be um, speaking about lost London, so continuing with the lost theme, mm. um, and hopefully focusing a little on lost Hoban as well, so we get to find out what was here before we were. And our next event for stop is going to be the 26th of April when we have a lunchtime lecture on lost Londoners, London, uh, Victorian London's lost property, all the people who disappeared into anatomical so please do keep looking out for future events, and thank you again, John. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry, that was, was a bit... Uh, we got there in the end. <laughs> so the next talk is going to be the sexual life of mummies, I can tell. <laughs> well, I, I sort of... <laughs> get asked to talk on weird things like that sometimes. Anyway, shall I just delete this then? Would that um, be... Yes, if, that, if that's all. Yeah. There we are. Nothing ever really dies, is it? No, no. Like mummies. Thank you very much. Thank you. So thank you so much.
Thank you very much. I'm looking at uh, video practices for Ptolemaic So a very specific little area, a very specific little time, but um, I think an important piece of work that needs to be done, because nobody likes Ptolemaic mines, except me. <laughs> no, no, they're still, they're still, don't forget, there were still lots of Egyptians living in the country as well. Um, it wasn't all just Greeks that had come in. Thank you. Thank you very much. Oh, right. Okay. Right. I was going to ask you the ethics side of it. The College of Surgeons got wrapped by the knuckles some years ago while I was working here because they had a lot of skull 